0: We will never be one of those fancy churches with the laser shows and the lights that gets it all right. We will be a church that worships and opens the Bible, amen? And we can do that without technology. So you are going to want a Bible this morning. If you have a Bible, go on and open up to the book of Romans. It's where we have been the last few weeks and where we will be uh, going for a while as we just move uh, chapter by chapter through that powerful book. So if you need a Bible, slip up a hand. We'll get a Bible to you so you can follow along uh, just uh, so... As we go or dive into this amazing uh, letter, so you'll have to forgive me this morning. It is actually ironic that we're having such issues with the technology. Uh, I was going to go on and just start off by saying I apologize. I'm a little rough around the edges personally because uh, this weekend uh, I got to take my boys to father-son camp. It's one of my favorite things that we do at the end of every August and. Uh, about 400 uh, fathers and sons up at Camp Ridgecrest in North Carolina. And I think the next picture of me and my, one of my son's youngest. And uh, we just get to spend that weekend together. I'm the camp speaker for the weekend, which is just a huge privilege to speak to those dads and those boys. But we drive home after the Saturday night session. So we got in a little after 1 a.m. last night. So, uh, So if something doesn't make sense, forgive me, and we can get coffee later and talk about it. But uh, one of my favorite things about father-son camp, and, and we've been doing this about eight years now, minus uh, the COVID year that we had to cancel. But um, is, uh, is at the end of the evening, go ahead and put that last picture up. At the end, at the end of Saturday night, the final, the final session up on the mountain is uh, we have this blessing moment where fathers will kneel down in front of their sons and look them in the eye and speak a, a word of blessing over them. I see you. I love you. I am for you. I am with you. And, uh, and recognizing, even talking to these dads, that a lot of men have grown up without that father's blessing. A lot of women have grown up without that father's blessing. That moment in their life with, with a, a father figure looks in the eye and says, I see you. I know you. I love you. I affirm you. And, uh, and just what that does for those boys. You know, and we have little ones all the way from six years old up to teenagers. We even have grandfathers coming back with fathers. And, and having that moment of speaking blessing. I love you. Not because of anything you have done, not because of anything that you can earn, not because you have uh, checked all the boxes on my checklist, but simply because you are my son. I mean, it is a powerful, freeing, beautiful moment. But I wonder how many of us have received or are walking in the reality of that blessing of God, of of a heavenly Father who sees you, inside and out, knows you completely better than you know yourself, and looks you in the eyes, opened his arms wide to, to sacrifice everything to be able to say, I love you, I am for you, I am with you, not because of anything you can do or earn, but simply because you are mine. And that, at the heart of it, is where, is, is where Paul goes with Romans as he says in the this is the gospel that has the power of salvation this good news of a different kind of kingdom with a new king that we are invited into that is going to transform and upend the world and so as we said, we were looking at Romans and understanding the context in which this, this uh, amazing letter was written. That Just as a reminder, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, uh, Romans was written to a, uh, a, an early church back in about the year 51 in the city of Rome. Rome, the capital of the empire. And in that city... Uh, or the, sorry, it's written in about 58, but in the year 51, all of the Jews, which were the founders of the Christian church, were Jewish, and it was a Jewish-rooted faith, but all of them were kicked out of Rome, and so then it's the Gentiles, these new converts that come from their barbarian or Roman or Greek Hellenistic ways, their pagan worldview into this reality of Jesus Christ, the true King. But then a few years later, the Jews are allowed back into Rome. And so they begin coming back into this church. And there's this collision of cultures, this division and confusion and struggle trying to figure out who are we in Jesus? And what does it mean to follow Jesus in this chaotic, conflicted world that we live in? Which we could transpose very easily onto the United States of America in 2022, couldn't we? How do we follow Jesus, the one that unites us, that that, that pursues us, that gave everything for us in this crazy, conflicted world? And Paul is convinced that the announcement of this new king, Jesus, and the kingdom of God has the ability to bring this church together in Rome and launch them out on mission into the world. As he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, in, in chapter 1, verse 16, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the gospel, the, righteous, of the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I love that phrase. I think we've, we've read it every week. That from faith, for faith, that we get this righteousness of God from, by faith, but also it helps us to live in faith. I mean, even just think about it, by, by, I don't know if you've ever studied the Bible, it's just a great little tool in studying verses, is to read the verse over and over again, but put an emphasis on different words in that verse. So you can read it, that the righteous shall live by faith. That eternal life, not just heaven one day, but the abundant life that Christ promises in John 10 is available, an eternal way of living now, access to the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. The righteous shall live by faith, but the righteous shall live by faith. This continual trusting in the presence and the power of God revealed in the resurrected Jesus Christ and so Paul as he as he makes this gospel statement then begins to talk to three different groups of people there in Rome and the first one we talked about last week and so I won't dive too much into it and praise the Lord you came back again this week after we dove into last week but it's the pagan culture that Hellenistic Greco-Roman worldview and what was at the center of their worldview Do you remember? Man. That Hellenistic phrase that man is the measure of all things. In other words, that if we want to know how to have life, it is is found by my desires. What I find is best. What I feel to be right. I am guided by my own natural impulses. And Paul says that that Hellenistic culture suppresses the truth about God. In verse 17, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So I was trying to illustrate this and figure out a different way of uh, understanding these three different groups. And so if you imagine group one, as, uh, I had fun shopping for these t-shirts. If you can't read it, it says, I don't have a God complex, I am God. I felt like this was a great shirt For that Hellenistic pagan worldview of the the Romans. That I determine what is best in life. It is my standard that is set. It is my desires that rule. I am who I say I am. Verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. And birds and animals and creeping things. I mean, in a verse, that is the definition of Hellenism. And since they did not see fit, in verse 28 continues, to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought to not to be done filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Even as we read that list, I don't think it's that far of a jump to say we live in a Hellenistic culture, a culture that's defined by my desires, where I sit on the center of the throne of my life, where what I want is what I deserve, who I am is who I feel that I am, and who are you to tell me any differently? The problem is, is that we have already seen the evidence of the 20th and 21st century is that humanism me-centered living fall collapses on itself that my standard for what is right and wrong collides with your standard for right and wrong as soon as what I desire doesn't line up with what you desire and you multiply and that's easy to see on an individual level if if me and Benji got into a conversation that no I really want that last slice of chocolate cake which Benji's like a, you know, super eater, so he would never fight for a slice of chocolate cake, but just theoretically, let's say. But you multiply that out beyond just a silly slice of chocolate cake to billions of people over thousands of years. And what do we have? The world that we live in. Humanism, me-centered living, where I determine the standard of what is right and good and true, collapses on the weight of itself. It cannot stand. And that's why Paul writes that it is a debased or a darkened and ignorant mind that lives in that place. And what is the fruit of that world? And he walks through it. And we find ourselves in this group, we see that the breaking down of what to live as a healthy Human, a healthy man, a healthy woman, healthy relationships, the way that God designed from the beginning in creation. And the fruit of such things, as he says, all manner of unrighteousness and evil, covetousness, which is simply greed. The literal word there means wanting or hungering for more. And Paul is writing this not simply as a window to understand another culture, but as a mirror in which we can see ourselves. Have you ever been in that place where you're just hungering for more and that hunger is what is driving you regardless of the cost to the people around you? Malice, which simply means evil. They're full of envy. Have you watched a commercial recently? Wanted something that wasn't yours or felt bitter towards somebody that had something that you don't and you feel like you're actually more deserving of that thing that they have that you don't have? Been there. Murder. Murder feel pretty good about this one I haven't killed anyone recently but if we take to the teachings of Jesus and the biblical testimony murder isn't just simply that final expression of taking somebody's life it is the violence in my heart towards somebody else that would want to destroy somebody else in my family in my house we, uh, we the word hate is a word that we are, are very cautious with because literally the word hate means I want to destroy I want this thing to cease to exist and so if I was to say, I hate you, it would mean I want to destroy you. I wish that you would cease to exist. And there are some things that we hate legitimately. And we say, you can use that word if you're using it in the right sense, but we don't. there's a whole lot of things that we throw around that word for. It is the violence of our heart, as Jesus would describe and Paul would reflect, murder. We kill one another in our hearts before we ever kill them with our hands. Strife, contention, conflict, deceit. You ever presented something that wasn't quite accurate or quite true? Ever use a filter on your Instagram? Ooh. Maliciousness—that conscious and intentional wickedness to do evil to someone. They're gossips. Go turn the air on. Is it getting warm in here? Because. That word literally means whisper, and it's a whisper that takes away from somebody, degrades or dishonors someone in someone else's eyes. Have you ever dishonored somebody in somebody else's eyes? Undermined who they are. Slanders, to speak against, to accuse with a claim that is false or exaggerated. Haters of God, we could keep going through the list, but I think you get the point. And we see that that standard doesn't work when we set man up as the measure of all things. But that isn't the only group that Paul is talking to. There are those, I heard a preacher talking about this, and he said that there are those that still have the, the stench of paganism on their clothes as they come into, uh, into the house church. Fresh from the Roman baths or from the Roman temple, sacrificing to the Roman gods and participating in the Roman uh, uh, illicit worship. But there are also those that they smell Jesus fresh and clean. <laughs> Hashtag blessed, I thought was, I had so many different options, it was a hard to choose. Some great Christian t-shirts that are out there. And what does Paul say to group number two? These are the Gentiles that have been following Jesus for a while. They've given up their Hellenistic ways. They are clean. They've walked away from that life. We've come a long way. Jesus has changed us, which is true, but they still have a problem. And what does Paul say? Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore... You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What? I I don't do those things anymore. And he continues, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So how? Like how are they in the same boat as group number one? Well, Paul continues, let's go on to verse 12, that all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. For all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be judged, justified. And to those church people, he was saying, it is not the hearers, but the doers. It's not just about what you don't do. But are you living in accordance with the heart of God as revealed in the ways that you do live? Are you fully living into the fullness of God? In verse 14, For when the Gentiles who did not have the law, the Jewish law by nature, do what the law requires, that uh, that we innately know what is good or evil, they are a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness. So, in other words, you don't follow Torah, you don't follow the Jewish law, but you do by nature what the law requires because your consciousness testifies to truth. Now, this isn't about circumcision or whether or not to eat pig, but it's about the truth of God's righteousness, who God is. And that the moment that we begin to recognize that there's another standard of what is good and right and true, we set ourselves against that standard. And every time we set up a standard, we will fail to meet that standard. We know this is true, right? Like Think about it just kind of in our own way or in, in your own lives. Even now, trying to live a moral and upright life, And most all of you don't fit necessarily into group one that is just living wild pagan party lives. I don't think so. But there's a standard in your head of what it measures up to be good or to be right or to be faithful. There's this, this standard that we all set of what it means to be a good person. And don't we also know, doesn't our conscience also testify that we fall short of that standard. Every standard we set will end up becoming a judgment against us because we will never measure up to any standard that we set. Whether it's the first one where whatever I want wants and it collapses on the weight of itself, or it's a standard of moral righteousness that in my heart I am striving for. And and in the church, there's a whole lot of people in group number two that are still striving on their own power to become something to measure up to some standard, whether that was imposed on them from a parent or from society or just from within themselves. In other words, have you ever had the thought that I don't measure up? I'm not enough. I don't have what it takes. I'll prove to them... I'll show them. Group number two has a standard. And against that standard, they will fall short. Even though they don't have the Jewish law, they show that the work of that law is written on their hearts because the law is a reflection of God's heart. And every human being is created in the image of God. In other words, at the core of every human heart, it is an awareness or a connection to the life that God created us to live. And we will always fall short of that life. So group one, they had a standard and they fell short of it. Group two also has a standard. and they fall short. And the word for that falling short in the Bible is the word sin. Now sin uh, is interesting in even like the the Jewish mindset versus western mindset. In, in the western mindset, sin is more about who you are. It's the sin, this thing inside of me that I need to get rid of. In, in the Jewish mindset, sin is more this thing that you do. Regardless, the the, the meaning of sin is that falling short. Falling short of God's standard, falling short of God's design. It's actually an archery term. So I brought a bow this morning. I didn't think about the fact that I'm holding a mic. This will work out. But I figured to illustrate this, just for the purpose of illustration, I was going to actually have Benji put this uh, apple on his head. And I think that I should be able to do this, right? we're all getting a little nervous right now (laughs) now we know the term right so falling short is an archery term that simply means missing the mark falling short and we all find ourselves in that same boat in other words if you're trying to get where you're going by measuring up or hitting some standard you're always going to fall short And it doesn't matter if that standard comes from god if it comes from your own conscience or if it's something that you just simply made up from your community or from your own desires or sense of life and paul's point is that in romans no matter which group that if you set up a standard you will fall short of your own standard and at that precise moment that you fall short you are condemned by your own standard now hear me on this it doesn't mean to throw out the standard There are things that are true and good that we should be striving for. That life is meant, that there are standards by which that we are intended to live fully in the image of God. But if we are trying to become or get where we're going by measuring up to a standard, we will always fall short. This year for Sadie and I has been a, a really significant year. Uh, in the spring, she started a new job. She used to work for the city of Monroe and now works uh, for uh, the state with cities across the state. This is a, a big shift for her. We graduated our oldest daughter and sent her off to college a few weeks ago. Uh, this summer, we celebrated 10 years of pastoring here in Monroe. It's our 20th wedding anniversary. So it's a significant summer for us. And so a while ago, we decided like, this is sort of a mile marker season and lots of questions like, what do we want the next 10 years to look like? What, what do we want our marriage to look like for the next 10 years? And, and, and how do we create space just to be together? How do we process Eden leaving and what this means for our family? And so we decided we were gonna go on an adventure. This is just, you know, who Sadie and I are. And, uh, and, and so this Wednesday, in three days actually, we are leaving to go hike the Camino. I don't know if you've heard of the Camino. There's a great movie out there called The Way, but it's this pilgrimage in Spain. And uh, if you do the full pilgrimage, it's about a 500-mile journey. Um, uh, we're only doing 120 miles of it, but, uh, and, but it's a 10-day it's a trip that you're hiking about 15 miles a day. We're also doing the, uh, the I want to say cheaters version, the booty version, I don't know, uh, we actually aren't carrying all our stuff. or hiring somebody to take our stuff from village to village so that we can just carry a, a bottle of water and our backpack, a book bag. Uh, but the, the interesting thing about the Camino, this is something that it's a, it's a pilgrimage, that, uh, that a monastic journey that's been going on, a contemplative way that's been a, a part of um, the Christian faith for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, of this pilgrimage towards Santiago, the city of St. James, where it's believed that the body of, Saint, uh, of James, one of the disciples, is buried, who was martyred. And, uh, and so for us, is this contemplative journey together. But the other interesting thing about the Camino is as a, as a, as a true pilgrimage um, in the Catholic faith, if you complete the the pilgrimage you actually get uh, the absolution of all sins in other words that you will get forgiveness when you go to heaven guaranteed so we got that going for us and uh pretty excited about getting to skip purgatory the uh it's called plenary absolution. It's the absolution of all your sins and reconciliation with God that's based on the fact that you've completed this sacred and, uh, and spiritual journey. The problem is, is, that, uh, is at what point do the standards of our efforts ever measure up to achieve our, our, our righteousness and salvation before God? Now, we love the pilgrimage. We love all the, the sacred symbolism of it. But at the end of the day, the fact that we hike, whether it's 120 or 500 miles, doesn't actually get me any closer to achieving the standard by which God judges. Romans 2, 3 says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Do you presume on, literally, do you despise the riches of his kindness? That somehow this striving for a standard, whatever standard we choose, is to turn our back on what god has accomplished for us on our behalf and what god has given us in his the riches of his kindness so i was sharing about this uh the camp that we did and the speaking of blessing but one of the other things that we do at the very end after speaking that blessing is we give the dads during the day a, a space to write a letter to their sons and so i've been doing this for the last eight years where i just simply write a letter to my boys And then after speaking the blessing by the fire, all the dads go off by themselves and they read their sons those letters. And I was thinking about that phrase, do you despise the riches of God's kindness? It would be as if having read that letter to my son and of that I love you, I am for you, I am with you simply because you belong to me. For Jacob to have taken that letter, wadded it up, and thrown it into the fire and said, Thanks, but no thanks, Dad. Listen, I'm going to prove to you that I am worthy of your love. I'm going to earn it. I'm going to do something that shows you that you should love me. And I just wonder how many of us are still relating to God in the same way. So there's a third group, and we'll get to that group. And that third group is the Jewish people. let Jews for Jesus. I like this one. They've been following God's law. They have God's standard. It's not simply uh, the standard of their own desires. It's not, it's not a, the righteous standard of, of morality or their own consciousness. It's a standard that they were given A law that was set thousands of years ago in the deserts of Mount Sinai. And it's easy for them to think that our standard, it is true, it is right. We didn't make it up. Our standard came from God himself. But Paul continues, verse 17, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure "...that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth." In other words, group number three, you think you're amazing because you have the ideal God-given standard, but, verse 21, "...you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself?" While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul says that even though your standard came from God, Jewish people, you see, you miss the mark too. Just because you know exactly what the heart of God is, you still far, fall short of it. That it's not simply because you're born into the right family that you receive the blessing of being Abraham's children. The law itself has become a condemnation because you have not measured up to what God says. So, what are the implications of this? Well, one simply is this, that all of us have a standard that we try to live up to. And it's important even just to acknowledge that. Wherever it comes from, from within yourself, from the world around you, from the family that you were born into, we all have a standard that we try to live up to. Whatever that standard is that we set up, that we hold over our heads. Whether we're still trying to get that hug of affirmation from mom and dad or trying to prove to the world that we have what it takes. There's these standards. I have to be. And we're all haunted by the measuring stick of our own creation or a projection of others. And number two is this. That part of the sinfulness of humanity is our own innate desire to find those who are below us and to demonize them. That we try to make ourselves feel better and look better by making somebody else look worse. Whatever group we find ourselves, one, two, or three, we know in ourselves we fall short of whatever standard we have set up. And so the easiest way to ease that tension is by looking at somebody else and saying, yeah, but at least they're below me. But Romans says that we are all unified by the same problem. That all of humanity falls short. As Paul will write in chapter 3, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But number four, that our cleansed conscience, our salvation, our redemption must come from some place other than our ability to live up to a standard. We have to find somewhere else besides whatever standard we set up for our salvation, for life. There's an interesting verse in Romans 2, 15. It says that they show the work of the laws written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Here's the question. And I want to think about this for just a second. Paul writes, According to my gospel, my good news, God judges the secrets of mankind by Christ Jesus. How is God's judgment when every secret is brought to life, to light, how is that good news? Just make it really personal. At the moment that every secret of your heart, every moment that you have fallen short of whatever standard you have set up, is brought to light how is that good news if all of a sudden we took your hidden dark closets the places that you don't want to even look like, look at much less let anyone else look at and we just broadcast that on that screen right there how is that good news i had breakfast a couple of years ago with a man uh And we were just catching up and hadn't seen him in a little while and just asking about his life and faith and where he was on things. And as we're talking, and it was just one of those, like, whenever I'm talking to people and... and, I know that's what we kind of try to empower and train all of us how to live, but the idea of having one year on that conversation and one year on another on another conversation, and I just had this this question come into my mind, and it was such a random question that I would never normally ask that I was like, I should probably ask this. And so even before I even thought about it too much, it just came out. And so we're talking, we're having breakfast, everything's great, we're having a good time, and uh, and all of a sudden I go, so even keeping your marriage bed pure. I never used that phrase. What a random phrase. That, so you keeping your marriage bed pure? And, and he's mid-bite. And all of a sudden, he looks up at me. And he goes, why'd you ask me that? And I knew in that moment, all of a sudden, it was like, and I honestly, you know, how like, in things, that like, in a split second, as the question's coming out of my mouth, I'm assuming he'll be like, oh, yeah, man, of course. And we'd laugh and move on to whatever else. And he goes, Why'd you ask me that? And then I was like, "Oh crap, here we go." <laughs> and I just said, "I don't know, man. I just felt like I was supposed to ask you that question. What's going on?" And he uh, ends up, you know, at, yeah, a couple months ago, met a girl on a business trip, and all this stuff comes out. He's like, "I haven't told anyone that. No one, no one, like, no one knows that this is happening." And I was like, "Well, there's there's one who knows what's happening." But the main thing as painful as that moment was and what that took that couple into and uh and and um and where that journey went there was actually a deep relief that this hidden secret was brought to light that the weight of the condemnation that he was living the shadow of the weight of the condemnation that he was living under himself that he knew right you know, you know the darkness, you know the secrets, you know the weight of the, the guilt that you feel for whatever the standards are that you're not measuring up to. So what is the good news when all secrets are brought to light? It's right there in the verse. In Christ Jesus. We need something else besides our own standard. And Thankfully, as we get to Romans chapter 8, Paul's building one long argument here. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what God has done, or God has done that the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. It is only the grace of God is revealed in Jesus Christ. That is able to set our hearts free. And it's only in the grace of Jesus Christ that we are able to live fully into whoever it is that God made us to be. We need God's grace and salvation. We need God's grace on this side of salvation and we need God's grace on the other side of salvation. And the moment in our our hearts begin to measure ourselves against a standard by which we we will earn God's love and favor, we are missing the mark of God's gospel. Where real freedom, where real life is found. One of the beautiful things about the fact that each week we take communion together is it's that weekly reminder that we continue to fall short. We continue to need grace. And Jesus continues to meet us in our brokenness. He is the one moving us towards wholeness and freedom and healing. And I need that reminder week after week that what He did on the cross, He did 2,000 years before I was ever even born. He knew every moment of my life before one of them came to exist. And there are some weeks that I come to the table and it's been a bad week. And I have to be honest with God. I am struggling. I am lost. I messed up. Jesus, I still need you. And it is only by your grace that I can live this life. And so we take communion together. This reminder of the presence of God with us and for us in the person of Jesus Christ. That bread that Jesus at that last supper broke and said, this is my body given for you. Nothing you can earn, nothing that you deserve, nothing that you can strive to achieve simply by the grace of God, this gift I give you. Will you receive the body of Christ for you? Take this, he said, and eat. And do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. The blood of a new covenant. Not because of anything you have done. Not because you deserve it or have earned it or you had a a great week. And you helped an old lady across the street. And you led three children to the Lord and taught Sunday school like Charles Spurgeon. No, because we are all a mess that need the grace of God. Before we lived a day, did anything or didn't do anything. Will you receive the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ by his blood on the cross? As he said, take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. So we're going to worship together. We're going to take communion together. Before you come up and take communion, just take a moment with the Lord and let him search your heart. What are the standards that you've set up? Is there anything you need to be honest with him about? Any place that you're still living under the weight of condemnation? That you're still striving to prove or to achieve, to earn your worth or your keep? Can you receive the unconditional love of God as revealed in the resurrected Jesus Christ? Let's pray. So, Lord, thank you that we are not that far removed from these Romans that you wrote this letter to. That we're all, in some way, fall short by the things that we have done or the things that we haven't done. That our own consciousness convicts us in the same way that your revealed law convicts us. And in all of it, we need Jesus. And so even this morning, Lord, may we come to the cross. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. This change of life, this turning towards to receive your grace, that we could walk in the fullness of life with you. May we leave all of that junk behind, our moralism and our paganism, our judgments and our convictions. And may we receive you, Jesus. Will you meet us here this morning? In your name we pray, amen.